Welcome to Out on a Limb, where traditional finance and the new digital economy converge with a sense of history. My name is Tim Enneking, and this is episode 27. Today is March 14th, 2023, and it's just after 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Today, a lot to talk about, as you can imagine, with all the events with Silicon Valley Bank, with Silvergate, and with Signature Bank. Uh, so we're going to have five topics. Uh, this uh, episode may be a wee bit longer, but a couple of them are quite short, uh, but important. The first topic is Silicon Valley Bank, Silvergate, and Signature. It's really quite interesting because Silicon Valley Bank had the same issues as Silvergate. Signature did kind of, but it's becoming more and more clear that it was just a uh, lack of confidence in management, which is kind of frightening if that can be a reason for shutting a bank down. But nevertheless, lack of confidence in management. So it may be a bit of an outlier, but it's also not completely an outlier. So to summarize the, the reasons, the three reasons really, why those three banks went under uh, is actually relatively simple. The first is single sector exposure on, on the depositor side. Uh, what I mean by that is most of the depositors in the case of Silvergate were crypto. In the case of Silicon Valley Bank, they were venture capital, really directly funds, investee companies, or related to venture capital in another way. In addition to single sector, Silicon Valley Bank had single geography uh, exposure. And that's, it's actually quite fascinating because Silvergate took a little bit more time to go down than Silicon Valley Bank did. Silvergate's client base, although uh, very much focused on crypto, like 80 to 90%, uh, they were geographically dispersed. That has two effects. One, time zones and just distance means that information travel uh, travels more slowly, and you didn't have quite the you don't have quite the herd instinct, at least not quite so rapidly, as with something like Silvergate. With Silvergate, not only were all of its or the vast majority of its depositors in a single time zone, they were in a single location in you know what we know as Silicon Valley, the Greater Bay Area, you know San Jose, however you want to describe it. And because of that, there was the herd mentality, the lemming effect. For those of you who may not be familiar. Lemming is an animal that when its population uh, hits too high a level, one, uh, a single lemming will start go will jump off a cliff and a whole bunch of other lemmings will follow it off. The, the worst example of herd behavior, and arguably you had something like that uh, in Silicon Valley until the FDIC, the Fed, and the Treasury decided to, to bail out even the uninsured depositors of Silicon Valley Bank. The second problem that all three of them had was long duration bonds. Some of you may have heard about the inversion of the yield curve. Usually when you borrow money, if you borrow for a shorter period of time, the interest rate will be higher because the lender has to make its fixed costs back over a shorter period of time, among other reasons. And longer debt will have a lower interest rate. You know this if you've purchased a house or a car. The interest rates go down the longer the duration goes out. But when you have an inversion of the, re of the yield curve, what that means very simply is that interest rates on short-term debt is lower than or are lower than interest rates on long-term debt. So what happened is with all three of these banks and many, many other in the United States, uh, 
they loaded up on what are called long-duration bonds. That is, bonds that have a maturity date of 15, 20, uh, 30 years out. And there are a couple of things that that results in. One, they did get a, a short-term fix, if you will, in terms of higher interest rates. But also, there are far fewer of those long-duration bonds than there are short-duration bonds. What that means is that if you have to sell them quickly, you actually depress the market. Now, there are some other account, interesting accounting things. Some bonds had to be marked to market and bonds that were, in theory, being held till, until maturity. You did have to mark to market. And when the bonds that weren't marked down as interest rates went up, and again, as, as some of you, uh, most of you probably know, as interest rates go up, bond prices go down. So what was happening in 2022 is that the value of the assets and the balance sheets of these banks was dropping very rapidly in the face of the largest, uh, most rapid increase in interest rates in the history of the United States. And now if the banks, if there's a run at a bank, then they are then forced to sell bonds that are accounted for as held to maturity. And when that happens, they not only depress the market because they're dumping these long duration bonds, but they also have to mark them down to the price they're able to sell them on, whereas before they weren't marked down at all on their balance sheet. So those are the two reasons that are specific to the banks. Uh, single sector exposure, single geography exposure on the depositor side, and horrible, uh, probably perhaps criminal, uh, certainly civilly liable behavior in terms of managing their assets because interest rates have been going up for a better part of a year, actually just over a year now. And rather than do something about it, these banks just sat on it, crossed their fingers, and were hoping that their depositors wouldn't uh, withdraw their money until interest rates went down again and the value of their balance sheets recovered. The problem there is, of course, that in addition to increasing interest rates causing an inversion of the yield curve, in driving down the value of long-duration bonds, it also stressed their clients. Crypto had a horrible year in 2022. New venture capital was down tremendously. And much more importantly, uh, IPOs are down this year 95% from 2021. So uh, how does that affect uh, the banks? Well, Silicon Valley Bank had huge influxes of capital from IPOs. And instead, what it had was a bunch of venture capital companies that were counting their pennies and pulling money out of accounts instead of making big deposits. So you have stress on both sides, both on the depositor side and on the balance sheet side. And then what I've realized over the last couple of days is there's a, there's a third piece to this problem, which is regulatory failure. When you think about it, it starts really with Jerome Powell. When the Fed is rapidly jacking up interest rates, it's going to have an effect on any entity, organization, whatever, that has a lot, of in, uh, a lot of bonds on its balance sheet. Well, one of the biggest holders of bonds are banks. And banks are something that falls under the Treasury Department, falls specifically under the FDIC. And the Federal Open Market Committee should be painfully aware of it. And if it's not, Janet Yellen should have grabbed Jerome Powell aside and said, hey, do you realize what you're doing to bank balance sheets? Apparently, that didn't happen to the point where, to the absurd point where the chairman of the FDIC, 
on March 6th, which is last Monday before any of this happened, <clears throat> at a conference announced that there are almost 700, there are almost $700 billion of unrealized losses on banks' balance sheets. And I've seen there are some great charts on this, and one day we'll turn this into video and I'll show stuff like that. It was a chart that showed unrealized gains, which went from two in, or gains and losses. It went from almost $200 billion positive to almost $700 billion negative in 18 months. And now, of course, the bank should have managed this themselves. And it's quite interesting to note that when Dodd-Frank was passed several years ago, the single biggest advocate among regional banks to not have Dodd-Frank apply to uh, regional banks was Silicon Valley Bank. Now, is it is it definite that had Dodd-Frank requirements applied to Silicon Valley Bank, it wouldn't have failed? No. But it still is interesting to note that there was no, uh, f- there was a lot less, uh, there's a much lower level of regulatory requirements, compliance requirements for Silicon Valley Bank than there were for the big five, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citibank, and the others that are, quote, too big to fail. Uh, so, in it, But in addition to Powell not paying attention to this, Yellen didn't pay attention to this. And apparently the chairman of the FDIC, who knew this was going on, waited until the unrealized losses totaled almost $700 million before he started raising the alarm, two days before Silicon Valley Bank uh, started the run and four days before it collapsed. So really, there were, re- there were numerous regulatory failures here to the point where the uh, Fed uh, has ordered a, an investigation on its own actions. It's reported, uh, it said the, the vice chairman of the Fed is now investigating the San Francisco Fed because San, the San Francisco Fed was obviously the one responsible for Silicon Valley Bank to find out what's going on. And now it just came out that the chief risk officer Stop for Silicon Valley Bank stopped working in the as the risk officer last April and left left the company altogether in October. So I think there's a lot more to emerge here as to how flamingly stupid the Silicon Silicon Valley Bank was. By the way, you can also add the CEO to the pile because he was the one who said, "Oh, we're running out of assets here. We're going to do a public issuance of of securities of stock to try to raise 2.5 billion dollars." Well, what he was really saying is that, hey, we're broke, and any chance that there wouldn't be a run on the bank disappeared with the CEO's student announcement. There was a, a tongue-in-cheek, but only partially tongue-in-cheek response to this. Some gentleman wrote, why didn't he just get on a plane, fly to Kuwait, Kuwait and sell a third bank for $2 million? That's what everybody else does. And had he done that, let's, let's take that tongue-in-cheek comment, or at least partially tongue-in-cheek comment, seriously, then he would have announced, hey, we had a capitalization problem. We're now fully capitalized. Thank you very much. Then there would not have been a run on the bank because a run is irrational psychological behavior caused by fear. And the CEO guaranteed that there would be a run on the bank. Uh, and there are a number of uh, employees of, of SVB who are more than a little bit unhappy with the gentleman. So those are the three reasons why you had uh, issues with banks. The frightening thing is there are a lot more unrealized capital losses on a lot of other banks. That's one of the reasons, for instance, why while why six banks have been placed on a credit watch list. Uh, the and the one that suffered the most was 
First Republic Bank, where it dropped uh, almost 80% over a couple of days, it recovered today when the Fed essentially came out and said, okay, okay, even though you're not technically insured above $250,000, we'll cover all your deposits. And they didn't say that for every bank in the U.S., but the fact that they said it for Silicon Valley Bank, while making sure that shareholders get nothing, executives are fired and may well be found civilly unlikely but possible criminally liable, and even the bondholders will probably be wiped out. It's a heck of incentive for banks not to screw up, but it gives the it gives uh, investor or gives depositors a lot of comfort. So there's a lot to talk about in that topic. There'll be more coming out. I'll pick a little bit up more of it probably next week. Uh, but I want to move on to the second topic now, which was something that really made me laugh on Tuesday. Uh, the little spiel I read at the beginning of each Out on a Limb, each of these podcasts, is where traditional finance and the new digital economy converge. That convergence was never so clear as it was on Tuesday. And I did a webinar for uh, one of my funds uh, on that day, and I showed everyone the headlines from New York Times, uh, Les Echos, which is a prominent French publication, Bloomberg, CNN, Cointelegraph, and Coindesk. And all four, all seven, six headlines, sorry, addressed the exact same topic, and that was SVB. Remember a couple weeks ago, I laughed at the fact that Powell, or last week, that Powell's testimony was carried live on Coindesk, Powell's testimony of the U.S. Senate. And that was an indication of convergence. I didn't label it at the time. I just thought it was sort of interesting. But when I looked at all of these headlines addressing the same thing, you can see what is happening now. And it's not total, and it's mostly one way, that is fiat affecting uh, crypto, uh, the only really major fiat event that has actually been a drag, or sorry, crypto event that's actually been a drag on fiat markets was the FTS crash in mid-November of last year. The first time, but I guarantee you it's not the last. So all the headlines from Tuesday address the same thing, Silicon Valley Bank. If that's not an indication of convergence, I don't know what is. The third point is the inflation numbers which put the FOMC in a real hot seat. The three-month wage growth in February was 3.6%. That's actually quite high. On a monthly basis, it went up a little bit, but on, a, uh, on an annual basis, it went slightly down. And then you had the inflation numbers that reflected the exact same thing. So in super short term, inflation is actually getting worse. On an annual basis, it's getting better. So once again, we talked about this before, the Fed is going to be in a position where it's got to decide, was there a blip or do we look at the longer term, the annual numbers? Uh, the, the, in, in my opinion, the, the Fed is going to have no choice but to continue uh, rate increases. But I'll get to that in the last point for today. But what you really saw was information both in wage growth growth or statistics, both from wage growth and inflation that pointed two different directions, leaving the FOMC, leaving Powell again in the hot seat. Now, uh, the fourth point, second last point before we get to interest rates, is BTC's price behavior. Absolutely phenomenal. One of the points I've made is that there are, there are four factors which indicate to me that 
Um, BTC will, will, is about, or crypto is about to begin, or has begun now, uh, after uh, mid-December, after the FTX crash and the forced capitulation, as I called it, that we're looking at a, a probably a three-year uh, fairly strong bull market. I don't think it's going to go crazy like in years past, but I think it's going to move up fairly steadily. For that to happen, the correlation between BTC and crypto has to drop. And I made that point the other day, that uh, correlation, which hit a high of 0.85, has now dropped to below 0.3. And it's done that this year, so an incredibly short period of time. Now, when you look at uh, that sort of behavior and think that, all right, it's not correlated anymore, you've got to see some occasional dramatic uncorrelated events. And we hadn't really seen dramatic ones. There have been a couple that hadn't been all that, all that much correlated, but it was still something that was really, how can I describe it? It was really questionable whether the lack of, or the low correlation would continue. On Sunday and Monday, as I wrote to my team here in San Diego, crypto is finally behaving like it's supposed to. And I suppose I would put supposed to in quotation marks. If you look at the, the origins of, of BTC, why Bitcoin was created, it obviously emerged out of the 208-209 crisis. And while that had a lot to do with the timing, it's not the only thing because Bitcoin was, as near as I can tell, the eighth or ninth cryptocurrency, as we call it now, project, and was one that finally succeeded. And some of the prior failures explain why Satoshi Yakamoto, whoever he is, uh, or she is, or they are, or it is, still to this day remains anonymous. Uh, and the idea was that uh, Bitcoin and ultimately crypto would, would, be, would not be dependent on the same things that fiat currency uh, was dependent on. And so what you have is either the irony or the hypocrisy of stable coins, which are stable because they're based on fiat currency. And that's really the safe haven within the crypto space, which is totally antithetical to the libertarian roots of, of Bitcoin and crypto in general. But you, what you had on Sunday and Monday really went back to the roots of crypto because as Circle had $3.3 million stuck with Silicon Valley Bank and Silicon Valley and that, that uh, the, F, the Fed, the FDIC had not yet announced that all deposits would be insured, would be covered, not just the insured ones at 250,000 or below. Uh, everyone was worried about USDC. Well, because the on-ramps were Silicon Valley, were, sorry, Silvergate and Signature, it was, and they each had networks that allowed 24 seven conversion, they were done on a weekend, you literally couldn't convert uh, stable coins into fiat. So what did everyone do? They jumped into Bitcoin. They didn't jump into, into crypto in general, although they did some into Ethereum and others. They jumped into Bitcoin. If you looked Sunday evening, what the 24-hour change of Bitcoin was, I guess it's probably Monday morning in most places, you would have seen that Bitcoin was up over 15%. ETH and a lot of other alts, as, as uh, they used to be called, you hear that less now, but everything but Bitcoin was up 10 or 11%. And I looked at the top 30 in the crypto, the, the crypto 30 index we run, and literally nothing was above 11%. That's really unusual because usually the alts move 
both up and down, much bigger than BTC did, does. And on Sunday and yesterday, that changed. Bitcoin jumped much more than the others did. So as a result, Bitcoin dominance jumped to almost 42 and a half when it had been when it had been several points lower than that. But you could also see what was going on. Uh, investors were scared of USDC very clearly. It went down to 85, which at the time I told everyone was overblown and it turned out to be very much true. But they were also worried about stable coins in general. So where do you go? They literally couldn't go into fiat because the banks were closed and the 24-7 networks were shut down. So they had to go into crypto or take the risk. They decided that not to take not to take the risk, and they went into BTC as the most solid crypto alternative. Absolutely wonderful to see that play out, and hopefully that will really put a, the final nail in the coffin of high correlation between BTC and fiat. We'll see we'll still see some correlation go up and down, but I really hope we never see it going to anywhere near 0.85 as it was at its record high. The fifth and last point is predictions. Predictions have been moving all over the place, and this predictions as to interest rate hikes. Citibank has changed its mind twice, and if you count where it was two weeks ago, it's had three different assessments going on uh, that it's issued in the last two weeks. And the bond market has priced in, you can look at bond rates and see the implicit pricing, has done the same thing. But it's changed three times in 36 hours. Before the crises, everyone was saying, especially after Powell's relatively hawkish, hawkish testimony on Tuesday and Wednesday, the prior week, in front of the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House, hey, we're going to get, we're now going to get a 50 basis point increase on March 23rd. People ask me, I mentioned this last week, I said, no, I'm sticking with my 25. Then you have the big crisis, Citibank and the, and the but you don't, but before the Fed bailout, Citibank and bond prices then say, okay, okay, we're going to have no increase. And again, I told everybody over the weekend, we're gonna, I'm sticking with my 25 bit uh, prediction. Then now today we get the inflation numbers coupled with the questionable, the sort of pointing both ways, a wage increase numbers from last week and now the bond market and Citibank have changed their mind again. And like I have all, all through this, my prediction is still 25 bips in March, 25 bips in May. Now, last week I said for June I was undecided. Um, and the only change I've made is that I think June, um, or I think May rather, will be the last interest rate increase. So we'll see another 50 bips in total. And in June, there not there may not be, or there in my my opinion, there will not be another increase. So May is the last one, uh, and I still don't think we're going to see decreases this year. I'm putting decreases in the first quarter of next year, and bond market, Citibank, and others have been all over the place with respect to when they expect decreases. Uh, this uh, all crises feel really bad when you're right in the middle of them. The people who see their way through to the end. Uh, the most successfully are those which don't get caught up in the immediate panic and can still take a look at the longer at the longer scale. Um, and the fact that people don't do that is why you have bank runs in the first place. So there you have it. Uh, you've got uh, my predictions for uh, in the, the interest rate increases and uh, probably more detailed assessment than 
than many of you have heard for on the, on the reasons behind Silvergate and Signature, and we'll explore that a bit more as additional information comes out. So on that happy note, uh, and welcome to this post-crisis week, and we will speak again uh, early next week. Thank you very much.